Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread, episode number 262 to be exact, and episode number 12 of our series for Lent. Our theme for this Lent series is preparing for more. And specifically, the last few episodes, we've been talking about fasting, which is kind of in this family of spiritual disciplines that that we're calling giving up. Now, now you may ask the question, why is there such a focus on fasting during the season of Lent? Well, there's several reasons. Perhaps most importantly, we emphasize fasting because Lent is a time of following Christ, specifically in his preparation for more. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness as he prepared to live out the primary purpose, the calling of his life. And when we fast during Lent, we're preparing for more in a similar way to Jesus. We're following the ways of Christ. He fasted and prayed and used scripture as a weapon in his battle against evil, every word that comes from the mouth of God, remember? I think another reason we fast is because we realize that the process of preparing for more requires a certain element of discomfort, even suffering. We've talked about that over and over again. We can't train hard without discomfort, and fasting is actually a way of practicing discomfort, stepping into suffering, choosing to step into suffering. There's also a sense of sacrifice in fasting, a sense of identification with the poor, those in need of God's blessing. And we'll see later on that it it even accompanies times of repentance, sorrow over sin, confession. So it's connected to renewal and cleansing. And finally, I would just say from my own personal experience, there's a sense in which fasting is a practice that almost always has an and after it. It's not fasting alone. It's fasting and repentance, fasting and confession, fasting and renewal, fasting, oftentimes fasting and prayer, fasting and prayer. And it's almost like fasting intensifies other spiritual disciplines. Maybe this isn't the best way to say it, but it's almost like when you want to supercharge your preparation, fasting flips the switch. Now, in the last episode, we dove into the fasting story of Nehemiah, and I felt like I just wanted to come back and hit it one more time, kind of conclude the story. So let's read again, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, I grieved, fasted, and and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, we have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember, 
Oh God, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And who is the man? Nehemiah ends chapter 1 by saying, And I was cupbearer to the king. Now remember, Nehemiah is a story of a people who thought their story was finished. Their lives were filled with political upheaval, brokenness, prejudice, and battle. Their hearts were filled with discouragement and despair, fear, and shame, and grief. But but God turned the page, and he wrote a new chapter. Read the whole book. It's an awesome book. A season filled with the rubble of broken hopes became a, a season of rebuilding, and renewal, and revival. And, and as we focus in this series on Lent, as we focus on preparing for more, I think that if perhaps there is one and only one necessary, critical, we're desperate for its source of hope in our story, it's the gracious hand of God, the gracious hand of God. The phrase comes from Nehemiah's summary of chapter 1 that's actually in verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. You hear what Nehemiah is saying? Nehemiah is saying this story was written by the hand of God. It wasn't my strategy, leadership, or plan. It, it wasn't my resources. No, it was the gracious hand of God. And isn't that the story we want written in our lives? I don't know how God works with you, but oftentimes as I'm reading the Bible, whether it's my own time with God or study time for teaching, the, there'll be a single line or thought that sticks with me. And Nehemiah's words here have stuck with me for almost a decade. They become one of my most frequent prayers. God, we need your gracious hand upon us. God, would you place your gracious hand upon our lives? God, we want to see your gracious hand move in our families, in the next generation, on our campuses, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, our country. God, give us your hand. Those words have shaped my leadership and strategies as I lead Calvary. God, show us where your hand is at work and we'll join you there. What does it take to be a church that lives under and out of the gracious hand of God? That's the question I'm asking all the time. Listen, if we, if we want to be neighbors who truly make a difference in our neighborhoods, if we want families that make a difference in, in, in their communities, if we want to be a part of a church that makes a difference in our world, we need to live our lives with the gracious hands of God all over us. In the last episode, I was making the case from Nehemiah chapter 1 that if we want to make a difference in our, in our world, if we want our stories to be worth reading, to be redeemed, if we want a taste of God's glory, at some point we have to take that same journey that Nehemiah did away from comfort, the same journey that Jesus did, that Paul did to embrace suffering away from comfort. And remember, fasting is a way, it's a simple way, it's, it's a way to practice stepping away from comfort and into suffering. Nehemiah heard about the suffering of Jerusalem, and he stepped into it rather than away from it. He says in verse 4, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah is stepping away from happy comfort to holy discontent. Fasting is part of stepping. It's a way of practicing discomfort. (laughs) 
Well, what do you mean by holy discontent, Dan? Well, holy discontent is what brings our hearts and minds to the place where we're motivated to rebuild the broken places around us. So just ask yourself, when I, when I look around at a broken world, a broken neighborhood, broken workplace, broken campus, what grabs my heart? What is broken in the world that breaks my heart? What is my holy discontent? And don't miss that. I said holy discontent. I think one of our problems today is that we get our contents confused. <laughs> we're content about things that should wreck our hearts, and we're discontent about things that don't really matter. I love the story that's told about Lou Holtz. It was his second season as head coach at Notre Dame. His team experienced a humiliating loss against Texas A&M in the Cotton Bowl, and Holtz was was absolutely dejected when he walked into the locker room after the game. He couldn't help but notice that most of the players didn't seem to be all that bothered by the loss, except for this second-string sub named Chris Zorich. He sat in front of his locker just crying these deep gut-heaving sobs. He was crushed by the defeat. Holtz decided at that moment that next year's team would be filled with players who cared as much as Chris. (laughs) The next season, Zorch went from sub to starter to captain, and his team won a national championship. And it started, it all started because he was the only player on the team who cared enough to cry. (laughs) See, fasting is the spiritual discipline of those who care enough to cry. Fasting is the spiritual discipline of those who care enough to step away from comfort, those who care enough to allow their hearts to be deeply burdened. And listen, you can't care deeply about everything. Your heart isn't big enough. Only God's heart is big enough to care about everything. You don't have the capacity to care deeply about everything, but we must care deeply about some things. And while there are some things that all of us should care about, racial injustice, loving your neighbor, the church, I also believe that God has a holy discontent, a personal holy discontent for you, one with your name on it. So just ask yourself again, what wrecks my heart? See, the practice of fasting is a way of saying to our hearts, I care deeply about this. I care deeply deeply about this. Bob Pierce was the founder of World Vision, what has become one of the largest Christian relief and development organizations in existence today, but it all started with a holy discontent. One day as a young pastor in Korea, Bob watched with disbelief as a young girl in third world Asia died while standing in line for food. When Pierce tried to find out why, he was told there just wasn't enough food at the head of the line which birthed a sacred frustration in Bob's heart. He wrote in the margins of his Bible, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. See, fasting is a a spiritual discipline that causes the things that we care about to bubble up to the top so that that we can pick and choose. (laughs) It's an opportunity to pray, God, would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? He went home and he gathered people together. He started World Vision. I don't know, the last time I looked, more than 100 million people in over 90 countries received physical, spiritual, and social help because of the holy discontent of Bob Pierce and because the gracious hand of God was upon him. Nehemiah's response, like Bob Pierce's, is also striking. He mourned for days. He fasted and prayed for days. He fasted and mourned and fasted and prayed for days. He has this deep, emotional, heartbroken kind of response. He can't even eat. Some wonder, maybe Nehemiah is hearing brand new news. Maybe, but my guess is that he's just hearing old news in a new way. 
You know, sometimes it's a timing thing, sometimes a heart thing, but one day you're driving through town and you pass by things that don't bother you at all. And the next day you're walking through your neighborhood or, or around the campus or in your workplace or you're standing on top of Mount Nittany and, and God just overwhelms you with loving, desperate compassion for broken people. Some of us, myself included, sometimes we want to medicate our hearts so that we don't feel the pain of a broken world. We put walls around our hearts. What we need are hearts without walls that reveal the heart of God to a world in need of love. I really believe in this season, in this time, God is looking for people who will sit down and weep, who will fast and pray and mourn for their neighborhoods, who will weep for the brokenness and care for the broken, people who see their community through his eyes, both the reality and the potential, people who care. Fasting is the spiritual practice of people who care. Fasting is the spiritual practice of a heart that's broken, or sometimes at least the practice of someone who knows their heart needs to be broken. Listen, I know that some of us, we're feeling overwhelmed by life right now. The thought of having a holy discontent, of caring deeply, loving my neighbors, and taking on a front yard mission seems impossible. I can imagine sitting and weeping, but... I'm not sure that I'm ready to weep for my neighbors. I'm not sure that I'm ready for my heart to be broken for my neighborhood. I mean, come on, Dan, I feel guilty enough about what I'm already not doing. (laughs) I just want to encourage you. God believes in you. His hand is in this. He's ready to place his gracious hand upon you. He he has you where you are for a reason. has you in the neighborhood or the workplace or the classroom and the family where you are for a reason. He hasn't abandoned you. He's working the night shift to shape you to live and love like Jesus. Wayne Cadero, pastor of New Hope Church in Honolulu, tells a story of going to China to train leaders in the underground church. They brought in 22 leaders from the Hunang province. These 22 men and women traveled 13 hours on a train to get to the hotel for the sessions. For three days, they would come up to the room, one or two at a time. They'd come up the elevator and they'd just wait in the room till everyone was there so that they wouldn't attract attention from the authorities. They sat on the hardwood floor, no air conditioning, and they wouldn't leave. Wayne taught 10 hours every day. At the beginning of the first day, Wayne stopped and asked him, so what would happen if the authorities found out that this church training was taking place? They said, well, Wayne, you would be deported home within 24 hours and we would go to prison for three years. So he asked them, how many of you have gone to prison for your faith? 18 out of 22 raised their hands. He asked them, how many people do you oversee in your churches? They stopped and counted and then they told him, we oversee a little over 20 million Christians, those 22. (laughs) Wow, he said. Okay, let's get started. He had 15 Bibles, so he handed them out. They didn't have their own. Seventeen, seven didn't get a Bible. He said, okay, we're going to start in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read it together. As everyone started turning to the chapter, one of the ladies handed her Bible to somebody else, and as they read, she recited 2 Peter chapter 1 by heart. She had memorized it. When when Wayne asked her about it after the session, she said, oh yeah, I've, I've memorized many books and chapters of the Bible. In prison, we have a lot of time to memorize Scripture. He said, how do you memorize scripture in prison without a Bible? She said, well, people smuggle in verses on pieces of paper. (laughs) At the end of three days, they asked him, they said, Wayne, in your country, you can gather like this whenever you want to study the Bible and pray. Could you pray that one day we will be like you? 
With tears in his eyes, Wayne said, oh, no, I, I can't do that. They asked him why. He said, because you rode a train for 13 hours to get here in my country. If you have to drive more than 40 minutes, they won't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, people sit for more than an hour. They'll leave. You sat here for three days without air condition. Never happened in my country. In my country, we have an average of more than two Bibles per family, and we don't read any of them. You have no Bibles, and you memorize Scripture from scraps of paper. I can't pray that you become like us, but I will pray that we become like you. Here's what I believe. I I believe that in our heart of hearts, we care just as much as they care. I believe that God loves us and believes in us just as much as he loves and believes in them. Here's the difference, I think. I think they've tapped into a different power, different strength, a different hope, because they've found that they just can't do it on their own. They need God's gracious hand upon them. Nehemiah knew he needed the same thing, and that's why it says in verses 4 and 5, when I heard this... I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. And really what Nehemiah was saying, Nehemiah was saying, I can't do this. I can't do this by myself. With all my strength, my strength is not enough. With all my leadership strategies, my wisdom is not enough. With all my access to get it done, people, I can't get it done without you, God. God, I need you. You are the great and awesome God of unfailing love. You are faithful. Hear our prayers. So Nehemiah prayed and he fasted for four months. Nehemiah prayed and he fasted for four months because he knew that beyond anything that he could gain on his own, he needed God's gracious hand upon him. So he prayed and he fasted for four months. What if part of preparing for more requires trying to do less? What if we need to fast and pray for more, more than we need to strive to try harder to do more? Maybe we need to stop striving and start surrendering. (laughs) It's really what fasting is. You know, in the last decades, there have been revivals of worship and many movements of prayer, but few calls to fasting. And yes, so often throughout Scripture and history and the shaping of hearts, fasting was a part of the journey to God's gracious hand upon us. It's a way of saying, God, I am so hungry for you. I need you more than anything. Would you break my heart for the things that break yours? It's a way of supercharging our prayers. I'm, I'm getting everything out of the way. Fasting just has this way of intensifying our prayers. Maybe. <laughs> It's not enough to hear stories of fasting and prayer. Maybe in preparing for more, what we really need to do is fast and pray. What will you do? What will you do? Father God, I pray for each and every person listening. I I pray that in these days as we talk about fasting and and a couple more episodes, I I pray that you'd put it on our hearts to fast and pray. I pray that you'd put it on our hearts to step into the discomfort, to to join in the suffering. I, I pray that we would have a deep desire that our hearts would be broken by the things that break yours. I, I pray that that there would be a, a supercharging of our prayers as we fast. Uh, every time we're hungry, it reminds us, oh God, we are hungry for you. We're hungry for your hand upon us. God, I pray, would you start a movement of fasting and prayer? 
for the good of the people, the neighbors, the, the classmates, the next generation for their good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.